Well, in February of 2019, right here in our own state, down in the city of Parkland, a 19-year-old gunman walked into Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and for reasons unknown began shooting. He was a former student of that school, and on that fateful day, he would claim the lives of 17 students and teachers and injure another 17. This event would go down as the deadliest school shooting in U.S. history. Almost one year ago, October 2021, the gunman pled guilty to all charges, and he apologized for his crimes. Well, just earlier at the beginning of this week, the sentencing hearing took place. And at that sentencing hearing, the families were able to give their impact statements and speak directly to the ones who took the lives of their loved ones. The statements were marked by rage and disappointment and grief. Nearly all of the relatives of the 17 people that were fatally shot confronted the gunmen with their words. In fact, so many people asked to speak at the hearing that a second day had to be scheduled. In their statements, they wished the gunmen a painful existence in prison. Others wished him a painful death. Not one family that spoke offered any words of mercy or forgiveness. One grandmother said, and I quote, I hope your every breathing moment here on earth is miserable and you repent of your sins and burn in hell. Another spoke and said, because of you, I will never feel safe again. I have no forgiveness in my heart for you. Well, one year earlier, in 2018, there was another murder, this time at the hands of a police officer, Amber Gweiger, who entered an apartment believing it was hers and fatally shot Botham Jean, believing him to be a burglar. In October of that same year, she was found guilty and convicted of murder. At the trial, Botham's brother, Brant Jean, was able to speak And with his voice cracking on the witness stand, he said, I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I just, if you're truly sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. I love you just like anyone else. I'm not going to say, I hope you rot and die like my brother did. I personally want the best for you. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. I don't wish anything bad on you. He then wiped a tear from his eye and asked the judge if it was possible to step down from the witness stand and give Amber a hug. Sobs could be heard in the courtroom as the two hugged. Even the judge wiped tears from her eyes. That's because forgiveness is shocking to witness, isn't it? Forgiveness can seem unjust and unfair, even irrational. We understand things like the one who does the crime should do the time, or an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, or there's consequences for our actions, whether big or small which means really none of us are all that fond of mercy 
and grace. In fact, I would say we're really not fond of mercy and grace unless it's pointed our direction. We typically aren't quick to forgive, but we certainly want others to be quick to forgive us. We love mercy and grace and forgiveness when we're on the receiving end. But I don't want you to miss this big idea this morning, and it's this. The mark of the Christ follower is the forgiven forgive. Now, there's many definitions of uh, forgiveness, but a simple one is to simply surrender the right to hurt others in response to the way you've been hurt. Forgiveness means refusing to retaliate or hold bitterness against people for the ways they've wounded us. And I would say forgiveness is a unilateral act. It's not conditional on the person being repentant or, or, or even willing to acknowledge what they've done. Forgiveness is releasing someone from their wrongs fully, freely, and forever. Now, we're in a series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the Creed is one of the oldest, most concise summaries of uh, doctrine and, uh, that the church has. And so, when we recited the Creed this morning, we joined with the universal church. Now, for thousands of years of believers speaking, this is what we know. This is what we believe. Now, it's important to remember that the Apostles' Creed was intended to be a summary of beliefs, uh, not a comprehensive statement of faith. And again, we want to remind you in this series, we're not preaching the Creed. We're preaching where the Creed comes from. We're preaching the Word of God. The Creed just reflects what we know from His Word. And so, if you're willing and able, I invite you to stand uh, with me in honor of God's Word this morning. We'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, if you want to turn there or follow along on the screen, Matthew chapter 18, beginning in the 21st verse. Then Peter came up to him, meaning Jesus, and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 77 times, or earlier translations say 70 times seven Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray together. Father, in these next moments, 
We're going to ask you to do what only you can do through the power of your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes spiritually and our hearts to receive what you have for us from your word this morning. Father, as always, we come to your word not just seeking information. Our desire is not to just know more, but we come seeking transformation that we will be made and formed and fashioned more in the image of Jesus Christ. Father, I believe you have a word for us this morning when it comes to forgiveness, and so I pray for soft hearts that would receive what you have, and Holy Spirit, you would do what only you can do, draw those who are far away through the power of the gospel to Jesus. We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. Well, some truths from our text this morning. Uh, The first is quite simple, and it's this, God forgives. We turn to one of our uh, other historic catechisms, this one, the Heidelberg, and in question 56, it asks, what do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? And the answer is, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by the grace God grants me, the righteousness of Christ to free me forever from judgment. It's interesting that when we confess our belief in the forgiveness of sins, we do so in the section of the creed that's connected with the Holy Spirit. Now, it would seem that the writers of the creed could have placed it under the section that had to do with God the Father or even Jesus Christ, His Son, because we learn from Scripture that we primarily make our request for forgiveness to God our Father. But then we also learn from Scripture that we're forgiven based on the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, who suffered on the cross for our sins. Yet here we see forgiveness connected in the creed to the Holy Spirit. And I believe the creed teaches us something incredibly important here, that the Holy Spirit must regenerate us before we can even acknowledge our need for forgiveness and seek pardon in Jesus Christ. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 5, he answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so it's crucial for our understanding of the gospel or what we know as the order salutis, the order of salvation, that we recognize and embrace that the Holy Spirit makes the first move. It's not you and I who make the first move towards God. We're dead in our trespasses and in our sin. And so before we can even respond by faith, we need the Holy Spirit to do a regenerating work in our hearts so that we can receive forgiveness. And so it's not only good, but it's right that the Apostles' Creed discusses forgiveness when talking about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we go back to the Old Testament, uh, the prophet Micah was one who just marveled at the greatness of God's forgiveness. Micah chapter 7, verse 18, he, he writes, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Here we see the uniqueness of God's forgiveness No other God, no other deity could offer the same kind of forgiveness as the one true God, the covenant God of Israel, in what He offers to His people. 
Because in light of the entire Bible, God's forgiveness is incomparable because he is able to forgive through Jesus Christ without compromising his holy justice. Only the God of Scripture is both just and justifier. The other gods of this world, which are no other gods at all, compromise their self-proclaimed righteousness when they forgive because they don't demand true atonement for sin. But then if we keep reading in verse 19, Micah says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. What an amazing picture, church. When God forgives, He he forgives in such a way that our sins are cast into the very depths of the sea. He puts them so far out of His sight that He never sees them again. Now, this brings up theological challenges for us. Well, does the Lord really forget our sin? Well, look, if we can remember the sins that have been committed against us, how then would the omniscient Lord not remember the sins of us that have made us lawbreakers? But what He's saying is He never counts our sins against us because of our standing through Jesus Christ. Through the blood of Christ, God sees us as righteous and acceptable in His sight. And He says, I will never take that status from my children, from those who have been redeemed and bought by Jesus' blood. And so, Christ follower, this means that saving faith is not simply just believing that you've been forgiven. Rather, as John Piper says so well, saving faith looks at the horror of sin And then it looks at the holiness of God, and it apprehends spiritually that God's forgiveness is unspeakably glorious and beautiful. We don't just receive it, we admire it. We're satisfied with our new friendship with such a great and a forgiving God. Listen, my goal for you this morning, faith family, is that you would see and savor and cherish and glory in God's forgiveness of your sin. But don't stop there. We don't simply want to see forgiveness as, well, good, I'm off the hook when it comes to my sin. That's transactional. What we're talking about here is relational. That we as Christ followers, yes, we cherish being forgiven by God. But there has to be movement and growth where we not only cherish that forgiveness, but we cherish the God who forgives. It's not just about what He's done for me, but it's about who He is for me. Our God that is merciful, our God that is just, our God that is gracious, who's slow to anger, abounding in mercy and steadfast love. And the steadfast love of God is just that. It doesn't run out. That should move us to worship. That should play a pivotal role in our sanctification in Christ Jesus. But I also recognize that some of you may face significant hurdles not just to worship, but to even receive God's forgiveness. Let me walk through some of them with you. The first, what you may be saying, well, well, what I've done is too bad. I know that God is forgiving, but He can't be forgiving for fill in the blank, whatever it is from your life and story. 
I know you may be saying, but Pastor Todd, you, you have no idea what I've done. The list is long and it's ugly. I've not just done some bad things, I've done some bad things. There's no way that God could forgive me. And I would say to you this morning, I understand. I, I really do. Grace and forgiveness doesn't make any sense. Grace, by its very definition, is unmerited favor from God. It's a gift that we don't deserve, that we couldn't earn. But by embracing how bad our sin is, in essence, we're saying, I know Jesus died on the cross to save the rest of the world, but Jesus' death could possibly not cover this in my life. See, we've made our particular sin out to be uniquely bad, but if you do that, you're also making Christ's payment inadequate for your sin. But what does Acts 2.21 say? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, the truth is that our sin is no worse and no better than the rest of humanity's. All sin is evil in the sight of the Lord, yet all sin is forgivable through Jesus' death on the cross. Others of you may say, well, I just feel I must punish myself in order to be forgiven. You know, we have a strange love affair with the law. There's kind of wired within us this innate desire to pay for our sins. And it's right. We logically understand that sin deserves punishment. And so we can feel that we must in some way be punished before we could ever receive God's favor. And I would say to you, you're partially correct. It's true that our sins deserve terrible punishment, but praise God, Christ received and endured that terrible punishment for you and for me on the cross. There's nothing else that we can do. No punishment could you ever take that Jesus Christ hasn't already taken upon Himself. So, so personal pain adds no atoning value to Christ's sacrifice. Remember what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6? He says, you don't belong to yourself anymore. Why? You were bought with a price. That price was costly. It cost Jesus his very life, but it also means it's been fully paid by Jesus. There's nothing that you can add to it. There's nothing for you to do other than simply receive what you don't deserve. And so you rejoice in that forgiveness. The price has been paid. Now, others may say, well, I, I know that God can forgive me, but it doesn't matter. I just can't forgive myself. And this seems like a very righteous response, but I want to show you this morning, it's really just the opposite. By saying you can't forgive yourself, you're elevating your judgment above that of the Lord. If Jesus says, I'm willing to forgive, I'm able to forgive, I will forgive, and you say, I'm not going to, what right do you have to hang on to something that God's already released? Do you think He doesn't know every sordid detail of your sin and my sin? He's seen it all. He fully knows. And if He's forgotten it, then why should we think that we're more honorable to try to hold on to it? See, we've got to remember that we're the offenders. God's the one who has been wronged. Our sin and rebellion is only against Him. 
So if we shift the focus to forgiving ourselves, we've taken the spotlight off of God and His forgiveness and we've put it on us. So if you feel you're not worthy of God's forgiveness, then I would say you're right. You're not. None of us are. None of us worthy of His grace. If we were worthy of His grace, we wouldn't need it. But remember Paul's words for us in Romans 5, 8, that God shows His love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's seen us at our worst. In fact, that's when He came to rescue us. We don't clean ourselves up first. He came to us when we were dead in our sins, and at our worst, He forgives, He rescues, and He redeems. Well, others have maybe saying, but Todd, God has allowed so much suffering into my life. I simply cannot forgive God for what He has done. I understand the pain from this life can feel overwhelming. I know that the instinctive response is to shake our fist and to be angry at God, upset at what He would do or what He would allow, this hurt, this pain, this suffering in our stories. But for whatever reason, which I admit likely doesn't make sense to you, the Lord not only has the right, but He's allowed difficult things in your life for a reason. All of us suffer from the consequences of living in a broken and fallen world, from the sins of others, from our own sin, but not once in Scripture are we ever asked to forgive God. God has not wronged us. God is ultimately the only truly wronged party, as He's the only one who's truly innocent. We have sinned against Him. In His graciousness, He's chosen to pay the penalty for our sin to save us. And if you're holding on to anger against the Lord, I just encourage you to let His grace melt away your anger. You would receive His grace. He wants to meet you in that today. And so I want you to hear me clearly this morning. There's no sin in your life that God cannot forgive that God does not desire to forgive. All throughout Scripture, right, Old Testament and New Testament, we see men and women commit some of the most heinous sins against God. And His response, because He's gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, steadfast in His love for a thousand generations is what? To forgive sin. That's the position of His heart He has the perfect desire and ability to grant forgiveness for all of your sin. So let me point you to 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to wipe it away, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So don't miss this. God's efforts are strongest when our efforts are useless. And until you come to that place where you just give up, you'll never receive God's forgiveness. I want to plead with you this morning. Receive God's forgiveness. You have not gone too far. 
He already sees. He already knows. You being here this morning is evidence of God's willingness to step into the mess you find yourself in and His desire to pull you out and to cleanse you. Your sin is paid for by Jesus. Take God's offer of forgiveness this morning. So God forgives. Secondly, we forgive. In our text, the disciples asked a great question. They said, well, how how many times do we forgive? In, In essence, when someone offends us, when someone hurts us, when they've wronged us, how many times are we supposed to forgive them? And and Peter, trying to earn the teacher's pet award, uh, goes out for a big number, seven times? I could do it seven times, Peter, so full of grace and forgiveness. And then Jesus shocks his hearers. No, not seven times, Peter. Seventy times seven. Multiplying a number beyond what anyone could ever possibly with human strength do. And he's saying to us, forgiveness is what Christ followers do. In fact, in the family of God, forgiveness flows freely. So for the people of God, the communion of saints that we talked about last week, becomes the platform where the forgiveness of God is made visible to the world around us. And so Christ's followers, as we have freely received God's forgiveness, we now are the vessels of that forgiveness to a watching world. Remember what we're taught in the model prayer? Matthew 6, forgive us our debts. We ask God forgive us as what? We forgive our debtors. But again, it's hard to forgive, isn't it? It's so much easier to hang on to hurt and pain and anger and bitterness, withhold that forgiveness. But unforgiveness and the result of our anger and bitterness actually is the prison that captures and holds us, not the other person. Max Lucado says, forgiveness is unlocking the door to set someone free and then realizing you were the prisoner. Forgiveness may be the hardest thing that any of us do in our lifetime. And I say may because many suffer and wrestle in in horrible ways, and I don't want to discount that. But C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. It's hard. It's difficult to offer forgiveness See, forgiveness is hard because it fights against the impulses of our flesh. But Todd, did you see how he hurt me? Did you see what what they did to me? Why would I ever make myself vulnerable again? The pain's so deep and it feels so deep. How could I possibly pretend to be okay with her? Or he keeps doing it. He said he was sorry, but he keeps doing it over and over and over again to me. Haven't I forgiven him enough already? I'll never be able to trust again. How could I possibly forgive her? Let me ask you this morning, what voices keep you from forgiving? See, in the parable, we're introduced to a man who owed the equivalent of 200,000 years of labor. That's 60 million working days, a debt that he could never repay a debt that would cost him, his wife, their children, their children, and so on and so on. 
And if you're familiar with the Bible, then you should hear this and know that, yes, there is a debt that can never be repaid. That should sound familiar to your ears this morning because that's each of our stories. This man's only hope was forgiveness. And we read that the master's heart was full of pity and mercy. He felt for him. He forgave him. Uh, Can I tell you this? You will never be a forgiver until you've experienced forgiveness. See, we forgive because he first forgave us. Ephesians 4.32 reminds us, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? Just as Christ through Jesus, has forgiven you. See, we forgive because God crushed His Son for our forgiveness. As Paul reminds us in in Colossians that He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. I can promise you no one has ever experienced loss like Jesus Christ. And so until you realize the evil you have done to God, the incredible debt you owe, 200,000 years of wages, a debt you could never repay until you're rocked by that grace. You will never be a forgiver. Look, I understand. I really do. You may have had unspeakable evil done to you, but you've got to see the evil you've done to God is far greater What others owe you pales in comparison to what you owe a holy and righteous God. And it doesn't mean what others have done to you isn't evil. It's not wicked or even treacherous. It just means what you've done to God is so much worse. And you've got to see it and feel it in order to be a forgiver. You see, to not forgive is to take the role of God as a just judge. And let's be honest, you're not, and neither am I. You're not a just judge. I am not a just judge. And so, we must embrace and receive that God can forgive all sin and that God has also asked us to forgive others. At the end of the parable and also in Matthew 6, we get a sobering warning, right? For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But... If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You see, the point of the parable is we forgive because we've been forgiven. Yet this man with this huge debt, what does he do? He goes out and finds a servant of his that owes him a comparably small amount, a few days' wages at best, and he chokes him. He demands payment. And even after hearing him beg for mercy, he has him thrown in jail. Is that you? Is that your response to others that have hurt you? Listen, if you've had a collision with the grace of God, and if you've truly been forgiven, then you forgive. There's no better indicator as to your spiritual condition and your experience of God's grace than how you offer it to others. We don't forgive in order to gain God's favor. Don't hear this wrongly. We don't forgive in order to gain salvation. It's actually how you show you've received salvation. 
It's how you show you've received God's favor. You give it away. Remember the woman that with her tears and expensive perfume knelt down and washed the feet of Jesus. And the disciples were shocked. In fact, they were actually offended. They were shocked because they knew this woman's past, but they were also shocked by her lavish outpouring of worship on Jesus. But our response should be like that of the woman's. Experiencing God's forgiveness means that I should have great joy in worship. I should cry deep tears and give lavishly as I come before my Lord in worship. God, may we show to others the forgiveness that we have received so freely. In 1994, there was a struggle in Rwanda that erupted in ways that had never been seen before. There were two different tribal groups, the Hutu and the Tutsi. They turned on each other and war broke out. Armed with machetes and clubs and uh, some rifles, the violence escalated, and in only a matter of three months, nearly one million Rwandans lost their lives. It was a woman who survived, but she lost her entire family. Her husband was killed. All of her kids were killed at the hands of their next-door neighbors, neighbors they had lived beside peacefully for years. And this woman still lives in the same house, right next to the same neighbors, the ones who killed her entire family. And now she eats dinner with them nearly every night, the ones who killed her family. She was actually interviewed by a reporter and asked how she does it. The reporter asked, how do you forgive people who took everything from you? She responded with three words. I'm a Christian. Faith family, this woman comes from the family that forgives 70 times seven. She's been forgiven, so she forgives. Don't focus on the wrong debt. Don't focus on the debt that others owe you. Don't ever lose sight of the great debt that you owe, that Christ took on the cross on your behalf. So if I could give you a practical action step this morning, a takeaway, if you will, when it comes to forgiveness, it's simply this. Direct your heart upward and make your action outward. Direct your heart upward and make your action outward. If you've never experienced and received God's forgiveness, you can today. And you just come as you are. Marriage in shambles, kids far from God, so much debt, you don't know how you're going to make it. Filled with anger, lust, sexual perversions. Uh, we come as we are, broken and filthy and needy. And look at me. He forgives. God forgives. So let me challenge you to turn your heart upward and receive it. It's a free gift. And then after we've received it, we give it. And we give it away freely.